pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are risen and reigning today, and we rejoice in you, not in our circumstances, but in what you have done for us. We pray that you would help us now as we hear from your word to once again let our hearts be stirred by what we hear from you and that we would not leave here the same as when we entered. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. We're supposed to be happy today, right? Joyful? Supposed to rejoice, are we not? If so, if that's the case, then how so? Are we supposed to just muster up a, a joyful spirit out of thin air? Should the music or church service or candy or company magically put a smile on our faces? Some of you are coming to worship today with heavy hearts. That's if you could even pull yourself together enough to leave the house. I mean, it's been a tough year. And I likely don't need to recount the ways. But over a year into this pandemic, we still have a host of heavy emotions. We are anxious about how much longer this will drag on. We're annoyed, if not angered, at all the restrictions that may or may not work. We are alarmed at this third wave's curve, record-breaking days, ominous variants of concern. We're upset that we're in a lockdown again. We're numb to all the sickness and death still around us. And that's not counting all the plenty of non-COVID, non-pandemic hardships in our lives in our, that we face, whether in family life, jobs, and finances, medical issues, and more. As a church, even this week, we are grieving the loss of one of our most beloved members ever. And we're supposed to be joyful today? I want to submit to you today that, yes, I believe we should still rejoice in Christ's resurrection. In fact, I think we need to rejoice in it or else give way to the despondency of this world. But to be clear from the start, true biblical joy isn't the absence of sorrow. Joy is a choice to rejoice in spite of any sadness around us. No, you, you don't need to cover your eyes and pretend like everything's just peachy today. But today the need is as big as ever for us to turn our eyes from our troubles and see Christ as our risen and living Lord no matter what else is going on with us. He may very well be the only thing that can give us true, lasting hope today. So together, let's turn our attention there. I invite you to open up a Bible to Luke 24. Whether physical or digital, contains the same words of God to us. And Luke 24 
contains several of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus rising from the dead. And it also shows one of the clearest responses of joy to it. I think it can help us understand why we should rejoice and also how to rejoice rightly. I probably don't need to fill in a lot of the context behind this passage. You probably know it. Obviously, this is after Jesus' death on the cross, his burial in the tomb. Actually, at the point we're going to jump in today, the resurrection has already happened as well. Jesus already appeared to Mary Magdalene, Peter, a couple of other disciples. The latest two disciples to see him have a, a fascinating story of how Jesus met them on the road, but they didn't recognize who he was until the end of their encounter. Look how their account concludes, starting from verse 30. Okay, verse 30 says, When Jesus was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so, the, so picture the scene with me, all right? Jesus' disciples are huddled together in a home in Jerusalem, in a room that they've reserved as a place to celebrate Passover together, but instead it had become a funeral parlor of grief, hideout from the authorities. The 11 remaining disciples are there, along with others who had gathered with them. And Jesus had appeared to a small handful of them, and those ones must have been thrilled while all the, all the others were likely torn between sorrow and joy, doubt and belief. It says here that most of them had come around, but they were struggling probably. They didn't know whether to believe the reports or not. It sounded crazy. Maybe they wondered if some people's grief had led them to go crazy. If I was there personally, I don't know if I would have allowed myself to hope. The grief was too raw. I wouldn't want to get my hopes crushed again. Anyway, the room was likely a strange mix of elation, depression, and everything in between. And right then, boom, Jesus shows up. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. Now, many of the disciples were already in a frightened state of mind. John's account tells us that they were hiding for fear of the Jewish leaders. But here, Jesus scares them in a different way. He startles them, makes them jump. A moment ago, he wasn't there, and then poof, he's standing there among them. Flat out terrifies them. Imagine being in their shoes. We feel the same. But this was actually the exact opposite reaction of Jesus, what Jesus wanted from them. He wasn't there to frighten them. He, as soon as he appeared, he said, peace to you. Peace to you. This was almost certainly more than the usual Jewish greeting of shalom. 
J.C. Ryle says, I am quite unable to regard this expression as being nothing more than the ordinary salutation of courtesy. It seems to me to be full of deep and comfortable truth. Just think of the, the last interaction that most of the disciples had with Jesus. Was it good? Positive? No, most of them had abandoned him or denied him. Jesus had every right to show up and be angry with them. Where were you when I needed you the most? But no, the first words out of his mouth were a smiling peace to you. After this, Jesus asked them a question, verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Uh, isn't it obvious why we're troubled and doubtful? Our Lord just died a brutal death. And it's not every day that someone seems to teleport into the room. Yes, it's understandable that the disciples were troubled and wrestling with doubt here. However, those two responses were no, no longer made sense in light of Jesus being alive. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's like, look at me. See the scars? It's me in the flesh. It's very likely that Jesus in his resurrected glorified body looked different than he had before. So it, it often took seeing the scars of crucifixion for it to fully dawn on people. But Jesus was saying, it's really me. I'm the same Jesus as before. And he wasn't a, a disembodied spirit or ghost either. Those don't have an actual physical body. Jesus invited his disciples to touch him to prove that he was really alive. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Goes on, he says, oh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? I love that description there in verse 41, that they disbelieved for joy. They disbelieved for joy. Other versions say they still do not believe because of joy and amazement or astonishment. We have the, the saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably because it is. Right? We see a, maybe a sale price in a store or something we want to buy and think, well, that can't be right. So we go ask a, a clerk in the store, and sure enough, it's a mistake. It can't be, if it's too good to be true, it can't be true. Here are the disciples that thought that Jesus being alive and back with them was too good to be true. Maybe they thought they were dreaming. Maybe they thought they had eaten something funny. But no, they could pinch themselves. Jesus was really standing there talking to them. And their disbelief was melting away. When Luke says they disbelieve for joy, it's probably like someone today marveling, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Like they actually do believe now. 
but they're so shocked that their belief is still catching up to their joy. They couldn't believe it, but they had to believe it, shaking their heads. The early church father, Augustine, described their response this way. While they were still flustered for joy, they were rejoicing and doubting at the same time. They were seeing and touching and scarcely believing. In Jesus' words here, we can learn a first way, I believe, to rejoice rightly in the resurrection today. I want you to imagine being there on that day in the room when Jesus appeared. Because even if we haven't personally seen or felt Jesus today, I believe the resurrection is just as real and true today. So we must respond to it. And so why should we rejoice on this Easter 2021 in light of Jesus' resurrection, we rejoice for there is no need for troubled or doubting hearts. We can and should rejoice for there is no need for troubled or doubting hearts. Don't know if you noticed yet another super, supernatural aspect of what Jesus did here in verse 38. I think it's probably easy, it was easy to read the fear on his disciples' faces. But Jesus not only questioned their fear, but what was going on in their hearts. He says, why are you troubled? And why do, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Do you see that now? Jesus saw directly inside of them what was going on in their hearts. He supernaturally knew what they were feeling and thinking and he knows what you're thinking and feeling today as well. As you see or experience the troubles of this life, he knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. He knows your physical pains, your emotional hurts, your heartache. And he knows your hearts and how you're responding as you hear these words today. Maybe you have a, a strong faith and have no trouble believing Jesus is alive and how that changes everything. Or maybe your first inclination is to doubt, to question the narrative. Or maybe you do believe, yet those doubts keep creeping in. Maybe it sounds too good to be true to you. Maybe it sounds anti-scientific mythological, made up. You're caught in this tug of war between faith and doubt. To us today, to you, I believe Jesus asks, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? I say, it's only natural to have hearts that are troubled right now in this world. Jesus says, you will have trouble in this world. But what Jesus' resurrection means is that there's no need to stay in that troubled place. It means that there is hope in the midst of the hardships. It means that there is true, abundant life found in a living Savior. It means that death does not need to be feared and that it is not the end. It means that there's light at the end of the tunnel. 
And it means that, that weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So in the face of troubles that can seem to overwhelm us today, I encourage you to, to see them all through the lens of Jesus being alive and well today. Like if our troubles were like a bright sunlight, it's bothering us. Let's, let's put on resurrection sunglasses. Okay, see everything through them. Let it shade and color our perspectives today. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Our living, breathing Savior holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. And there's not just no need for troubled hearts, there's also no need for doubting hearts. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, it, again, it's not inherently wrong to have doubts. We all have them from time to time. Jesus corrects them here, but he's not rebuking them harshly. Like, how stupid could you be? Like, why aren't you believing yet? No, he, he knows that doubts were only natural, and he's very gentle with our doubts. What matters most is what we do with our doubts. What do we do with them? Do we stay there, focusing on them, feeding them, letting them grow stronger? Or do we search out answers to our questions, seeking to move back to faith? Tim Keller has written some really helpful stuff on being sure to doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. To question why you're doubting something. Because as, as those doubts are based on some other belief that you're choosing to believe at that moment. So he says, for example, you cannot say no one can know enough to be certain about God and religion without assuming at that moment that you know enough about the nature of religious knowledge to be certain about that. He goes on to say, to say you won't doubt your doubts means you refuse to ever question your beliefs. That makes you just as doctrinaire now as you say you are not. Don't lead an unexamined life. Doubt your doubts and explore the reasons behind them as much as your reasons behind all belief. See, here, the disciples doubted because they believed that Jesus being alive had to be impossible. And you may think the exact same thing today. Are you certain about that? Are you sure? Like, have you actually considered the historical claims the Bible makes? Have you questioned how a dead guy can change the world and billions of lives? Have you examined the evidence for a resurrection, making an informed decision? I believe that there are excellent reasons to believe that Jesus really did die and really did rise from the dead. And that actually leads right into another reason I think we can rightly rejoice today. See, Jesus didn't downplay his disciples' skepticism. He sought to prove that he really was alive. He appealed to their senses of sight, hearing, and touch. And then he entrusted the future of his whole movement to their eyewitness accounts. 
that alone, like, there's plenty of evidence for the res- resurrection being real, which itself, the resurrection was pro- all the proof that God had accomplished his redemption plan. And so, we rejoice for what needed to happen really happened. We can and should rejoice for what needed to happen really happened as Jesus rose. He started out by appearing to his disciples, speaking to them so they could see and hear him. After this, he showed them his scars, inviting them to both see and touch him. We read this already. Why are you troubled? Why are your doubts arising in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Then he went even further after showing him his hands and feet to prove that he was a living, embodied person. Verse 41, while they still believed for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, these acts were essentially physical proofs of a legit resurrection. Luke says elsewhere that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Later on in Acts 10, when Peter was spreading the good news everywhere, he said this, said, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. You catch that? We ate and drank with him. Like dead men can't eat. Ghosts, mere spirits don't eat fish. And the main point is that while spirits don't have flesh and bones, Jesus clearly did. And this was the same person who had gone to the cross and obviously brutally died. Theologically, what this means is that the salvation Jesus offers isn't only a spiritual salvation. It's also a physical salvation. And this is Really good news if you think about it. Because each one of us consists of a spiritual and physical part to us, a soul and a body. And we sin as both bodies and souls. Means both parts of us need saving. And we believe that our souls are saved as soon as we believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. However, our bodies still need to be saved and redeemed and transformed. Guess when this will happen? At our own resurrection. When we ourselves will rise from the dead. And guess what guarantees that that will actually happen? Jesus' resurrection. So, in order to save sinners completely, body and soul, God needed a true human to beat death, and Jesus did. Jesus did what needed to be done in order to give us true life and lasting hope and joy. Look what he says as he continues talking to his disciples. Verse 44, then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures had prophesied about Jesus. God's word said that a Messiah, a Savior, King would appear one day to make atonement for sin, to die as a sacrificial lamb, to not stay dead, and much more. And Jesus' life absolutely miraculously and intentionally fulfilled every such prophecy. And so he was like, these things had to happen. I had to die. I had to rise again. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So three things were written that had to be fulfilled. First, that Christ would suffer and die. Second, that the Christ would rise from the dead on the third day. And third, that repentance and forgiveness in his name would go global. We can rejoice today because Christ really did suffer in our place. We can rejoice today because Christ really did rise to new life, never to die again. We can rejoice today because God enabled us to repent of or turn away from our sins. And as we experience new life in Christ, we can be transformed to be like him. We can rejoice today because we can be forgiven. Despite our rebellion against God, in love he wants to forgive us. We can rejoice today because, because this gospel has gone forth to all nations and will continue to do so. As we sang, this gospel truth shall not kneel, shall not faint. And we can rejoice today because as Jesus goes on to say in verse 49, we can receive God himself. It says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit there, who comes and, and gives us power to live in newness of life. Romans 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So everything that needed to be done for us to be restored to God has been done so rejoice. And today, if you haven't realized the significance of Jesus or put your faith in him, I desperately hope that you will. This needed to happen in human history, and this needs to happen in each one of our hearts and lives. Right now, there is a, a great chasm between you and and God, between you and heaven, between you and, and life after death. Without this, like without uh, uh, some solution here, our lives and deaths are pretty bleak. Like without a Savior who bridges the chasm for us, we are destined for death and worse. And without resurrection life, what's the ultimate point of life now? If the dead are not raised, Bible says this, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The good news 
is that our once dead Savior was in fact raised to life, that the dead are raised, that he bore the punishment for our sin in his death and then defeated death once and for all. Jesus' resurrection tells us that no matter what sins you've committed in your life, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, you can be forgiven. It also tells us that if you believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven. It's a guarantee. Listen to the standing offer. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It would make my day, it would make your life if today was the day you did this. And you, you could say on Easter Sunday, 2021, I gave up my doubts, I left my sin behind and asked Jesus to cleanse me, save me, make me part of his family. But please, if you're here, when we're done, talk to us, talk to whoever brought you today if you're tuning in online, tell us in the comments, shoot us a message to let us know you believe and you want Jesus to be your Savior today. It is wonderful news worth rejoicing over that this really happened. This wasn't some legend or mythological tale or fictional bestseller. There were bona fide eyewitnesses of Jesus being risen. The Bible says there were over 500. And here, Jesus told his disciples clearly, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. They saw, they heard, they felt Jesus, and now they can spread the news. And spread it, they would. They turned the world upside down with their testimonies. Like, we're here today, worshiping Jesus as Lord because of their initial witnessing. Their repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It was like a, a good pandemic. And it spread throughout the world from there, from Jerusalem. But it wasn't a disease spreading, it was the cure. I wonder, have you contracted the cure? Are you contagious with it now? I believe that the the eyewitness accounts are some of the most significant evidence for the resurrection because these were not people who stood to gain much by spreading fake news. If they were lying or making up a story, then why on earth did a lot of them die for it? All they stood to gain was opposition Ridicule, ostracization, exile, or death. And yet many of them sacrificed everything because they knew it was true. Also, by all accounts, these were mostly lower class, uneducated people, uninfluential. And after Jesus' death, they'd been cowering, hiding, thinking they were next. But something radically changed them overnight into bold preachers. 
Something life-altering. Like seeing a dead man come back to life. You are witnesses of these things. And we are not witnesses in the exact same way. Our eyes have not seen him, but we are still witnesses of the risen Christ. You could say that we are ear witnesses or heart witnesses. And we have the reliable testimony of eyewitnesses, which God calls us to trust. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Like if you have faith in this, it allows you to rejoice now, no matter what is going on around you. The stench of death, the fear of death permeates our world today. Everything related to the pandemic reeks of it. Death, like it still packs a punch. But do you know who's ironically not touched by death's sting anymore? Whom we know as Mrs. Ella Swinimer. Those of you who are newer to Calvary don't know Ella, and that breaks my heart. <laughs> She's one of the most precious women I've ever had the privilege of knowing. Her joyful spirit, her hospitality, her wisdom, her humility, her godliness. This is a woman who hosted a small group in her home well into her 90s. And loved, loving on everyone who walked into her living room. She constantly prayed for those around her. I cherished her prayers. And she exhibited a humility unlike anyone else. Always bringing up ways she was falling short, but how God was working on her. But Ella, like, I think if I reach 95 years old one day, like she did, I want to grow up and be like her. On Monday, she passed away from this earthly life. Many of us are pretty sad about that. We'll, we'll mourn, we'll miss her greatly. But why aren't we crushed? Why aren't we devastated to lose someone like her? How can we actually rejoice through our tears? It's because of what Ella's Savior did in his resurrection. That he crushed death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? On the day Ella died... I had just, like, in the hour before that, read a quote from the 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody. He wrote this in the opening lines of his autobiography. So someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all. 
out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. We don't believe that Ella is really, truly dead today. Oh, her body's deceased. We're not in denial over that. But in vastly more important ways, she is more alive than ever before because Jesus is alive. And she's gone to be with him. And so there's no need to fear death. There's no need for our hearts to be troubled. There's no need to doubt. Everything that needed to happen really happened. So now, we can rightly rejoice. And with contagious joy, we can spread the word. Heavenly Father, would you do this in us today? Light a fire in our hearts. Help us not be silent over what you have done for us. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.